chapter 12. Hear the word of the Lord this morning. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and 10 horns, and on his head, seven crowns. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea. For the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle, so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river and the, that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. As far the reading of God's word, let's pray that it becomes clear and understandable and applicable to us. Our Lord and our God, we understand that we need your spirit because yes, we can see words on a page, but we need to understand them. We need to digest them. We need to be nourished by them. We need to be renewed by them. And Lord, that can only be accomplished by the gift and power of your spirit. So Lord, Accompany the preaching of this word with the blessing and provision of your supernatural work. Lord, so that we would not just hear, but we would hear and understand. And not just understand, but understand and live in light of and obey. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. On September 1st, 1939, was the day that Germany invaded Poland. And that marked the beginning of World War II, which would then last until August 14th, 1945, when Japan surrendered. And if you work back in history, June 28, 1914, the Archduke of Austria was assassinated. And many historians mark this as the catalyst that began World War I, which would continue until November 11, 1918, when Germany agreed to surrender and cease combat. And then April 12, 1861, Confederate troops fired on Fort Sumter in Charleston, South Carolina, marking the beginning of the Civil War which continued until April 9th, 1865, when General Robert E. Lee surrendered the last major Confederate army to General Grant. And then to keep working back in history, on April 19th, 1775, fighting between colonial and British troops 
broke out in Lexington and Concord, Massachusetts, marking the beginning of the Revolutionary War, which would officially end on September 3rd, 1783, with the signing of the Treaty of Paris. Now, I could keep giving the history lesson. We could go back and back and back and mark more and more and more times because history has been marked by war and conflict. In fact, what I read to you is just a small sampling of some of the ones that are most notable to us given our context in history. And yet, as significant, as history-shaping as those wars were, they pale in comparison to the war and conflict that John describes for us in Revelation 12. The war that John describes predates all these other wars. It will last longer and has lasted longer than all those other wars. And the stakes and consequences of the war in Revelation 12 is far more significant and serious than all other wars. In a sense, you could say that what John is unveiling for us, and that's part of his goal in Revelation. Revelation is is the unveiling. He's pulling back the curtain on history and what's going to happen in the future so that we would see and understand, not just from a physical level, what our eyes can see by sight, but that we'd understand by faith from a spiritual level. John is unveiling for us the ultimate conflict beneath all conflicts. He is showing us the great war that in one sense underlies all the other wars throughout history. For example, if someone were to ask you the question, you know, why has the history of our world been marked by, by so much violence, so much conflict, so much war, so much bloodshed? You could answer it on two different levels. Okay? On one level, you could seek to explain the complexities of you know, political factors, national factors, tribal factors, land factors, hostilities, and that would explain it on one level. Or you could answer it on one of the most fundamental levels by explaining that we live in a fallen world marked by sin, that we live in a fallen world where the enemy of God rages against God and his people, and his goal is to steal, kill, and destroy, and encourage and entice that wherever he can. That's another way to explain it on an even more fundamental level. So one of the reasons why the world has been marked by so much physical conflict is because behind and beneath that, is the spiritual conflict between the enemy of God and the people of God. And so that's what John is showing us in Revelation 12. In fact, what he wants us to see in Revelation 12 is that the dragon, as he describes it here, has declared war on God and his people, and he will not stop. And so we need to know the dragon's tactics, and more importantly, we need to trust in the lamb's triumph. So Revelation 12 is about John informing us that There is a dragon, the enemy of God, who has declared war on the people of God. And therefore, we need to know his tactics and trust in the Lamb's triumph. And so let's start by looking at the two parties that are engaged in this conflict, which John notes for us. One party is mentioned in verses 1 and 2 of Revelation 12. Look there. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman, quite interesting array, clothed with the sun, the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. If that weren't enough, she was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. You can probably guess that from that description, you can see why many interpreters see this as exclusively describing Mary, the mother of Jesus, the one who gives birth to the Messiah. And the Messiah is explicitly mentioned in verse five, the one who is born, who's gonna rule the nations with the rod of iron. But I think if we take all the descriptive imagery into account, I think John is describing a group that includes Mary, but it's actually bigger than Mary. He's describing the people of God throughout all of history, Old and New Testament. And 
Why I think that is because when you take the symbolic description of the star or the, the, the sun, the moon, and the stars, the only other place that shows up together in scripture is in Joseph's dream as he recounts it to his family. So if you remember the story of Joseph, Joseph has a dream. And in fact, his story is all about these different dreams that he has. But the first one he has is one that his family was really excited about, really uh, eager to see come to fruition. He goes to them and he says this. He dreamed another dream and he told it to his brothers and said, behold, I have dreamed and behold, the sun, the moon, and the 11 stars were bowing down to me. That's the only other place in scripture where you see these three elements show up in one place. And it's the place in which Joseph is describing the dream that the Lord is gonna use to start forming and gathering and building the people of God. It's Joseph is that 12 star that the 11 stars are bowing down to. And the sun is there and the moon is there. It's the imagery that this is a heavenly people that God is gonna build on earth with these heavenly symbols. And whenever the number 12 shows up in Revelation, you can take it to the bank that it is a numerical symbolic description of the people of God because 12 tribes, Old Testament, 12 disciples, New Testament. But why a woman with this description who's also pregnant? I think it's because of the significance of the promise in Genesis 3.15 that starts and kind of kicks off the whole storyline of salvation in the Bible. Genesis 3.15, right in the aftermath of the fall of, of Adam and Eve's sin, God is cursing the serpent. But as he's cursing the serpent, he even throws in there the first promise of the gospel. Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity, hostility, conflict between you, serpent, and the woman between your offspring and her offspring. Can you see how that shows up in Revelation 12, the the war between the offsprings? And here's the promise. He, a single male child, shall crush your head, shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So packed into this one short statement in Genesis 3.15 is the whole kind of mustard seed of the storyline of salvation as it unfolds from that moment on, going to Revelation 22. And what God's people were waiting for in the Old Testament, in light of this promise, is where is that child who is going to crush the head of the serpent? Is it, is it Noah? Maybe it's Abraham. Is it, is it Moses? Maybe it's David. Maybe it's Solomon. And time after time, it's, it's not them. And so they're constantly waiting. So it's, it's this idea of that the Old Testament people of God were like a woman in expectancy, waiting for that child who is going to come to bring this promise to fruition. And so that's one of the people in this conflict, the the people of God. The other person in this conflict is mentioned in verses three and four of Revelation 12. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and 10 horns and on his head, seven crowns. Now kids, I know I said before that the other picture I had you draw was really interesting. I think this one would be, might, might be even a little more interesting. So not now, but after service, you wanna draw a picture, you show it to me. Um, I'd be interested to see what you come up with. Well, verse four, his tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. Now, what I love about this chapter is John doesn't make us guess who this is. Look at verse nine. And the great red dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan. This is wonderful. I wish he would do this more often, but he just gives us the answer right there. It is a veiled, almost mythological reference to Satan, our great adversary. And the reason he's described as a dragon is because if if you know your mythology well, 
Dragons were always considered kind of serpents on a larger, grander, more powerful, more ferocious scale. They're not just those that slow down the ground, but they can walk and fly and breathe fire. They're, they are formidable and ferocious foes. So think of the dragon that shows up in Snow White. Think of St. George and the dragon. Or if you're a fan of The Hobbit, think of Smaug in the um, Lonely Mountains. That, that's kind of the description here. And yet each of the other descriptions given to this dragon are meant to reveal some characteristic of our enemy. So for example, it's a great red dragon. So red is often associated with blood and death because this is a bloodthirsty dragon. He's out to steal, kill, and destroy. And then the seven heads are likely a symbol of the dragon's intelligence and craftiness. Remember how he's described in Genesis 3? He's more crafty than any other beast. And then the 10 horns, horns are usually a symbol of military might and power. So 10 is this number of kind of fullness and great strength. So this, this dragon is not only intelligent, but he has great power. And then the seven crowns or diadems is usually a symbol of political authority or, or influence that one has. And so this dragon is to a degree influential and authority and, and authoritative, especially over those who are enslaved to the power of sin. So you, you put that all together and here's the enemy that John's describing to us in this conflict. He's a ferocious, bloodthirsty, crafty, intelligent power and influential enemy, a most formidable foe. And so what John is wanting to set up at the beginning is here is the battle that we're engaged in. As the people of God, here is the enemy of God. And he wants us to know that in part so that we would know that we're engaged in this battle and that we would live in an understanding way, that we would live with what some have called a wartime mentality as opposed to a peacetime mentality. A peacetime mentality, when all is well, all is quiet, all is good, is when you approach life and spirituality with no sense of urgency, no sense of vigilance, no sense of seriousness, because for you, life is all about relaxing. It's all about gratifying self. It's all about kind of grabbing life with all the gusto you can. And when you have a peacetime mentality, you approach things like the Christian life, like sin, like growth in Christ-likeness with a, you know, what's the big deal? Or, you know, I'll get around to that later. Right now it's about relaxing, not about addressing these spiritual matters. But a wartime mentality approaches life with the urgency, the sober-mindedness, the vigilance, and the seriousness that it deserves. Because life is about glorifying God, not gratifying self. And because we have an enemy that does not negotiate, that does not sign peace treaties, that does not rest or sleep, And when you have a wartime mentality, you approach the Christian life and matters of sin and matters of sanctification with a this is of first importance type of mentality, with a other things can wait, but this needs my primary attention. And now, yes, we do have the peace of God which passes all understanding. We are at peace with God, but being at peace with God, we're also then at odds with God's enemy because we're at peace with God. And so because of the spiritual war we're engaged in, we need to always be fighting the good fight by approaching life with a wartime mentality. So that's the parties of the war. Now let's consider the history of this war. So when you read a a book about a conflict or war, when you watch a documentary about it, and it's seeking to cover the, the full scope of it as much as it can, what you'll learn in those books or documentaries is what are some of the various factors that brought about this war? What are some of the streams that fed into this conflict? Who were the major people and parties involved? What were some of the major and decisive battles? Where were they fought? How was it fought? And then 
What were some of the consequences and aftermaths of that battle? War is really kind of wrapped up with history, kind of what led into it and what flows out of it and what happened during it. Well, in many ways, Revelation 12 reads like an abridged and highly symbolic history book of the great spiritual conflict that humanity has been engaged in ever since the fall. So for example, in verses one to six, John recounts this great spiritual war from an earthly perspective. And he gives a super fast flyover of history leading up to the ascension of Christ. So for example, it mentions in verse four that the dragon that the dragon was seeking to devour this promised child. And in one sense, that, that's giving us a clue to how the enemy of God pursued the people of God in the Old Testament. Think of the story of Exodus, of, of Moses' kind of miraculous birth. What was going on at that time is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, knew that the people of God were growing too numerous, that God was actually blessing them and multiplying. So he, he issues that demonic edict that all male children should be killed. And Moses is that promised child that has to be safely delivered so that he can then deliver God's people. Well, verse five then moves us quicker and faster up to the life of Christ. So verse five, if you look there in your text, mentions very quickly the incarnation and the ascension of Christ. So it says, she gave birth to a male child who's to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. That's the beginning of Christ's life on earth, his incarnation. And then it goes very quickly to his ascension, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. So John highlights kind of the bookends of the earthly life of Christ, his incarnation and his ascension. And I think part of the reason he's highlighting that is because there's almost no place in scripture where we see a heightened intensity of conflict with this spiritual war. So think of the birth of Jesus. There was another demonic edict issued by another king, King Herod, who said all children in Bethlehem under two years of age should be slaughtered because Herod did not want a usurper to the throne. And that was, I think, demonically energized. And then at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, right as he starts his public ministry, he goes out to the wilderness to face the tempter, the one who caused Adam to fall, the one who caused Israel to fall. And there he does battle with him and he seeks to make him forsake his father, to turn from his father, and yet Jesus is faithful. And then what do we see throughout Jesus' earthly ministry? We see him, and I think it's no coincidence, that there is a heightened sense of an all-out assault through demonic activity where Jesus is demonstrating his authority, not not just over storms, not just over food and bread and diseases, but even over the demonic. And then what happens toward the end of Jesus' life? Well, Luke mentions that Satan had entered Judas that he might betray him. Or what does Peter say to Jesus? He says, you know, Jesus, forbid it that you should die. And then what does Jesus respond? Get behind me, Satan. There was this influence that was seeking to undermine the mission of Jesus, and yet he successfully accomplished it. So that's kind of an earthly overview. But now look at verses seven to nine. John, like he does so often in Revelation, is he switches vantage points. It's almost like like a, a camera angle change. He goes from the earthly perspective to the heavenly perspective, and he speaks of a decisive battle in this spiritual war that went on in heaven. Verse seven. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Now many wonder, what, when is this battle taking place? Is, is John going back to the beginning, kind of before the fall, and kind of giving us the origin? I think that's one view, but I think what John is actually giving us a window into 
is the heavenly spiritual battle that happened at the same time that Christ was defeating Satan on earth. He's kind of letting us see how it was in heaven as it was on earth. So this isn't kind of looking back to the origins of Satan. This is looking at what happened to Satan in the heavenly spiritual realm when Christ died on the cross, when he said it is finished, when he rose victoriously on that first Easter Sunday. And the reason I take that view is look at verse 10 and look at the time marker kind of noted in verse 10. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers have been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. So notice in verse 10 that the timing and victory of this heavenly battle is directly tied to the salvation that Christ accomplished as he came here, died, and rose again. And I think there's, there's two statements in the gospel that shed light on this. So in Luke 10, 17 to 18, Jesus has sent out 72 of his disciples kind of for, for a training mission to, to go to the houses of Israel and proclaim that the kingdom is come and the king is here. And, and they come back and you've probably heard of the Magnificent Seven, but you, have you heard of the Magnificent 72? They, they were excited. They were kind of wheeling and dealing and defeating the demons everywhere they were. And they say to Jesus, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Very significant. And then Jesus responds, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. That what, what Jesus is describing to them is that the, the kingdom of God is advancing in a new way and there's a retreat in the kingdom of darkness. Well, then another statement in the Gospels, John 12, 31 to 33. This is kind of the hinge point in the Gospel of John. It's turning from the miracles that Jesus does to the death he dies and the resurrection he accomplishes. And he describes what's going to happen this way in John 12, 31. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. What kind of death was Jesus going to die? He was going to die a death that in part brought about the casting out of Satan from the heavenly courtroom. Now up to this point in history, Satan was allowed to show up in the courtroom of heaven. And when he did, he did it for one reason, to bring accusations against the people of God. And case in point is the book of Job. The book of Job opens with kind of a courtroom scene where Satan is there accusing God that the only reason Job is a righteous man is because he's got a lot of good stuff. And if I had a lot of good stuff, you know, wouldn't it be easier for me to honor you? Take it all away and I bet you he will curse your face. He will curse you to your face. Now, I don't think that's just an isolated incident. I think what Job is giving us a window into is the char- a characteristic example of Satan's accusing activity. That's what he does. That's his native language. That's his native tongue. And what John is showing us here is that heavenly courtroom accusation activity has ceased because of the death and resurrection of Christ. The cross of Christ is to this spiritual war what D-Day was to World War II. Allied forces storming the beaches of Normandy, June 6, 1944, advancing, winning a decisive battle. So Christ approaches a hill called Calvary. So he approaches that place called Golgotha, carrying that cross that's happening on that Good Friday. And as the victory at Normandy marked that decisive moment when Germany and her accomplices were defeated, so the moment when Christ cries, it is finished, that moment he gives up his spirit, that is that decisive moment 
when he deals that fatal blow to the serpent's head, when he crushes his head, even as his heel is bruised. And when Jesus cries, it is finished, it marks that decisive moment when all the accusations that Satan could bring in the heavenly courtroom are silenced. At that moment, Satan was disbarred and forever expelled from the heavenly courtroom. Because before the death of Christ, Satan's accusations could build a quite convincing case, right? Satan could say to the Lord, look at all these outstanding debts of sin. Blood of bulls and goats, that doesn't pay it. There's outstanding debt that needs to be paid and you're not making them pay it. You say that the wages of sin is death and yet you're letting all these people go without paying the full penalty for their sin. You say you're a God of justice and yet look at all this pride and rebellion and unbelief that you're overlooking. He could build quite a convincing case. But the moment Jesus takes our record of debt with all of its demands, all of its lists of wrongs, done and not done, and nails it to the cross, he pays the wages our sin deserves. The moment he feels the full weight of the justice of God bearing down on him, the moment he drinks the last drop of the cup of wrath that was handed to him, that is the moment that every single one of Satan's accusation is now invalid and inadmissible. It's the moment he's disbarred. It's the moment he no longer has any case to bring against the people of God. And notice the great irony of the victory statement mentioned at the beginning of verse 11. So this is a great red dragon, an intelligent, crafty, powerful, influential dragon. And how is he defeated? Look at verse 11. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb. How is a ferocious, bloodthirsty dragon defeated? By a lamb who lays down his life for us. Do you feel the irony of that statement? Now, everyone who knows anything about the mythological animal kingdom, and that should be all of you, knows that lambs are no match for dragons, right? If you're facing a dragon and you ask someone for help and they bring and set a lamb next to you, you're looking for someone else to help you out next time, okay? Dragons eat lambs for breakfast, right? And yet herein lies the wonder and power and irony of the gospel. Even in the shame of suffering, even in the weakness of death, Christ in his lamb likeness is still able to defeat our greatest enemy. The weakness of Christ is stronger than the strength of Satan. That's the irony and beauty and wonder of the gospel. And notice as John continues in verses 12 and 13, he mentions that there's, there's an ongoing history to this war. There, there are some decisive battles that he's mentioned. There's some background, but there's actually ongoing history. Verse 12 and 13, Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, but woe to you, O earth and sea. For the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he'd been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. John is saying is, the dragon has been decisively defeated, but he has not surrendered. He has not laid down his arms. Though he's cast out of heaven, he still fiercely rages on earth. What John is describing is like that time gap in World War II between D-Day and V-Day. There's almost a year time period between June of 1944 and then May of 1945. D-Day was that decisive battle that decided the fate of the war. 
but it did not bring the war to a definitive end yet. There was still almost a year of fighting and skirmishes and battles that were left to be fought before that, so, that formal surrender, that end of war. And what John is saying that as Christians, we live in that time gap. We live in that between D-Day and V-Day time gap because Christ has come and he's coming again and you live in between that time and here's how it's going to be marked. It's going to be marked by an enemy who wants to pursue you. And so you need to live with a wartime mentality. And so we have the assurance of victory on the one hand, and yet we need to remain alert and vigilant on the other hand. We need to live in the tension of those two things, knowing that we're victorious and yet still alert, still vigilant. And you might have a question at this point. Why is this spiritual war still ongoing? Why is there still an ongoing history to the spiritual war if the decisive battle has been fought? Why hasn't Christ eradicated the enemy and put an end to this? Now, that is one of those questions that we don't know the answer to. But I think our passage gives us a clue to an answer to that question. Not the answer, but an answer. Why has Christ not just eradicated the enemy and put an end to this spiritual conflict? Well, if you look at verse 6, if you look at verse 14, John mentions both times that God, in a sense, in this spiritual battle, provides a measure of protection by bringing his people into the wilderness. So verse 6, it mentions the wilderness. And then in verse 14, it mentions the wilderness that God has brought his people into. For example, just look at verse 14. It says, but the woman who's given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she should be nourished for time, times, and half a time. I think this is kind of a subtle allusion to the Exodus, that God brought his people out of the reign and tyranny of that kind of early iteration of the ancient serpent, which was Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who's seeking to destroy the people of God. And like God protected them and provided for them and brought them into the wilderness, so he's doing that with the people of God now. And so what was the wilderness for the people of God in the Old Testament? Well, it was a place of protection on the one hand, but it was also a place of preparation and testing, a place where God brought his people not just to deliver them out of bondage, but to prepare them for the promised land through testing, through humbling, through preparation. So as one author has said, we need to remember that God is not only preparing a place for his people, he is also preparing his people for that place. That's one of the things that God is up to now. And in this spiritual battle that we are engaged in, as we travel through the wilderness of this world toward the promised land, what the dragon means for evil, God rules and overrules for our good so that it might humble us, it might refine us, and it might grow us in ways that we otherwise would not have grown. And I think the best example of this is the example of Peter. So Peter, as you probably know if you've read the Gospels, early Peter is very brash. He puts his foot in his mouth all the time, and he's self-confident in a very overly self-confident sort of way. In fact, he's so self-confident that one time when Jesus disagrees with him, he calls Jesus a liar, basically. That, that's a self-confidence on another level. Well, as Jesus' death is approaching, Peter puts his foot in his mouth again because of his self-confidence, because he's told by Jesus, you're going to deny me three times. Peter says, no, Lord, I am ready to even die with you. And Jesus doesn't even contest with Peter. He just tells him this. He says, Peter, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned, strengthen your brothers. There's so much packed in their prayers. Jesus prays for Peter, and the way he prays for him, you know that he didn't pray for Peter to be removed from the battlefield. He didn't pray for Peter to be exempt from this 
um, wheat sifting skirmish with Satan. No, he, he leaves him in it. But he prays that when he goes through it, that he would be strengthened because of it. Jesus leaves Peter in the spiritual battle because he knows that going through it, when Peter denies him three times, that pain and shame and humbling that Peter feels when he hits kind of that rock bottom for Peter is actually the place where Peter's going to get restored and built up and renewed in a way that he comes out more humbler, more wiser, more guarding of his tongue, and more Christ-dependent than he otherwise would have been had he not gone through that wheat-sifting skirmish. And as the Lord does sometimes for people like Peter, he does for you and I. He uses the spiritual battles that we go through to both break us down and build us up simultaneously. And if you're anything like me, there's a lot of breaking down and a lot of building up that needs to happen. And sometimes this is what the Lord uses to do it. So that's one of the answers to why why is this spiritual battle still ongoing? Because there's still growth that God's people need that comes through this battle. And as we draw to a close, I want us to look finally at the tactics of the dragon in this spiritual war. As one author said, if Satan cannot keep us out of heaven, he will do what he can to keep heaven out of believers while here on earth. If he cannot extinguish our light, he will do what he can to diminish its brightness. If he cannot cause our faith to shipwreck, he will still do what he can to raise up a mighty storm. So we must arm ourselves with a thorough knowledge of the schemes of the evil one. And there's a number of schemes that our chapter highlights, but I want to focus on one of them in particular. So one of the uh, schemes that's highlighted in verse three, when it talks about the dragon's desire to devour the, the woman and her child, this speaks of his persecuting scheme, where he seeks to, through the intimidation and threat of physical violence, which the early church would have known all too well, he seeks to cause us to abandon the faith. And then another scheme is mentioned in verse 15. Look there with me. Verse 15, it says, in the ongoing history of this war, the serpent poured water like river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. I think anytime the mouth is mentioned in Revelation, it's usually a reference, a symbolic reference to teaching. Like Jesus has a sword coming out of his mouth. The word of his teaching is that sword that we can fight the enemy. Uh, and then here, the serpent is pouring water out of his mouth like a river. It's the picture of the false teaching and lies and deception that pours forth from the serpent, which he seeks to drown out the truth, which he seeks to drown out sound doctrine within the church and even outside the church. But the scheme I want to focus our attention on is mentioned in verse 10. Look there with me. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come down for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. I think the reason John highlights that twice is because he wants us to know that though that tactic is no longer used in the heavenly courtroom, he's been thrown out, it is still used often and frequently here against us on earth. In fact, Satan being the crafty, intelligent enemy that he is, knows that there's almost nothing more joy-robbing and motivation-killing and assurance-suffocating than convincing us that the sin we committed 10 years ago, 10 days ago, 10 minutes ago, puts us beyond the reach of God's love and his grace. There is nothing that kills gratitude and motivation and assurance more 
than that crippling sense of condemnation that Satan wants to weigh us down with over and over and over again. And you probably, if you're breathing, know the voice of the accuser all too well, and it sounds maybe something like this. You know you're nothing more than just a fraud and a hypocrite. I mean, how can you live one way in public and be like this in private? There's nothing true about you. You're just a fraud and a hypocrite. Or maybe it sounds like this. How can you think that God loves you and forgives you when you're still struggling with this sin over and over? You keep saying you're sorry, you keep repenting, and yet you can't overcome it. There's no hope for change. Who are you? Now, I don't want to go more because I don't want to cripple you with condemnation, but you probably recognize that voice. The goal of the accuser is to try and get us to believe that Romans 8.1 applies to everyone but us. Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, except you. Because he knows that when we are crippled with condemnation, we will not have any joy in the Lord. We will not go forward in fighting sin. We will not be uh, zealous to serve others. It, It just kind of suffocates everything. And yet, how do we overcome that venomous, accusing voice of the serpent? Look at verse 11. How did believers conquer them? They conquered him and his venomous, accusing, condemning voice by the blood of the lamb. The only way to overcome the accuser is by drowning out his voice with the voice of the advocate, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. When Satan tempts you to despair, where do you look? Upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. The only way you drown out the accuser is by silencing it and overwhelming it with the voice of your advocate, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. If anyone sins, if anyone sins, that's all of you. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. There's a scene in Pilgrim's Progress that wonderfully illustrates this. In fact, there's there's really two literary scenes. I have to, I didn't mention the other one, but I gotta mention it. In The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, right? I know I overuse this book, but this is a great scene. Edmund, is the character who betrays his brothers and sisters to the white witch. He wants Turkish delight. And everyone has said, if you've ever eaten Turkish delight before, you know Edmund's an idiot because Turkish delight is not worth it, okay? It's not that good. Apparently it's not. Edmund has betrayed them, and yet he gets, he knows that what he has done is wrong. And yet he's trapped now in, in the witch's power and her grip, and she's going to kill him. And yet Aslan sends an army to go deliver him and brings him back. And Aslan and Edmund have this conversation where basically... We don't know what's said, but we can imply that he's forgiven, he's restored, he repents, and, and, and all things are reconciled. Well, the witch comes into the camp, and she starts accusing, he said, you have a traitor in your midst. And, and it says, everyone knew that she was talking about Edmund, but it said, but Edmund didn't care because he went on looking at Aslan and didn't mind what the witch said. Just kept his eyes right on Aslan, the one who had forgiven him and restored him. That's how you fight the voice of the accuser. The other scene is from Pilgrim's Progress. Christian, he's traveling with prudence, and they're conversing about how do you battle temptation? How do you battle despondency? How do you battle the evil thoughts that come in your head and and cripple you? And so prudence asks this question of Christian. Don't you find that sometimes you can defeat those evil things and thoughts that at other times seem to defeat you? And Christian answered, yes, it happens occasionally, and they are golden hours that I treasure. So prudence says, well, can you remember? What are the means by which you are able occasionally to defeat the evil desires? and thoughts that assault you. Christian said, yes. When I think about what I experienced at the cross, that will do it. When I look at the embroidered coat that has been put on me, that will do it. When I read the scroll that I carry my coat, that will do it. And when my thoughts turn to the place to which I'm going, that 
will do it. So what Bunyan was trying to teach through Christian's conversation is that when we are feeling weighed down by a record of sin, as Satan reminds us of it, we need to look at the cross where Jesus has canceled it and paid it in full. Over every one of our sins stamped, it is paid for, in full. When we are overwhelmed by a sense of our own unrighteousness and inadequacy, we need to remember that we are clothed not in our own righteousness. There's not a stitch of our own works that has gone into the garments of salvation. It is all made from the perfect righteousness of Christ. And when we are drowning in doubt, we need to swim in the blood-bought promises of Christ that are in Scripture laid out for us for us to feast on and be nourished by. So when the dragon assaults us and condemns us, we need to remember that he has been decisively defeated by the blood of the Lamb. And in the Lamb, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, how firm a foundation is laid for us in your precious word. What more can you say than to you, than to us what you have said, Lord? May we know your promises. May we treasure them. May we live in the freedom of the gospel. And Lord, help us to overcome our unbelief because it is great. Help us to believe and to treasure and cherish. And Lord, in this battle, give us a vigilant, sober-minded view of life. May we be alert to the schemes of the devil. Help us to put on the armor of God and help us to rest in the victory of the Lamb. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in this battle that we are engaged in as the believers and in the victory we have, I can think of no better song to sing than A Mighty Fortress is Our God. So let's stand and let's turn to page 9 and 10 of our bulletin and let's sing that together.